This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you with support from AWS Educate. AWS Educate provides students and educators with free resources to accelerate cloud-related learning to enhance tech career readiness. changed since 2012, or the year that the New York Times dubbed the Year of the MOOC. I'm Sydney Johnson, an assistant editor here at EdSurge. MOOC, if you don't already know, stands for Massive Open Online Courses. And the premise back then was that these classes could make high-quality online education accessible for all and for free. But some things have changed since then. Many providers now charge a fee, for instance. And they've rolled out bundles of courses called things like specializations or nanodegrees. And while these companies once tried to distinguish themselves from traditional higher ed, popular providers like Coursera and edX are increasingly partnering with colleges and universities to offer MOOC-based degrees online. So seven years after that year of the MOOC, we're wondering, where are these courses and companies today, and how are universities responding? EdSurge recently hosted a meetup where we invited a group of experts to weigh in on those questions, and they had some really fascinating insight. Those speakers included Dual Shaw, the founder of Class Central, Amy Ahern, an associate director at Acumen, Kapish Saraf, head of growth and consumer products at Coursera, and Kristen Palmer, director of online learning programs at University of Virginia. If you couldn't make it, don't worry. This week, we're bringing the event to you, via podcast, of course. And we'll start at the beginning. I asked Dual to kick things off that night by sharing some of the stats he's tracked about the MOOC industry in 2018. Here it is. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Hope everyone's feeling good. So if anyone here is not familiar with Class Central, you should be. It's a website that Dwal runs, which has reviews about MOOCs and online courses. Um, and Dwal is just a really keen observer of this space. And each year he does a report on kind of the year in MOOCs and some of the big trends that we've seen in the industry. So I asked Dwal if he would um, kind of give us just a really quick 2018, uh, what happened in MOOCs rundown. So Dwal, you want to take it away? So uh, last year, uh, the number of learners who have taken at least one MOOC crossed 101, uh, 100 million. Uh, but the number of learners added uh, were just 20 million, which was less than 23 million for the last two years. So the, the rate at which new users are coming into the MOOC space is decreasing. Uh, the number of courses has been growing steadily at the same rate. Now we have uh, more than 11,000 courses from 900 universities. And this is another way to look at the MOOC providers. Um, Coursera is the biggest one with the most revenue and the most number of users, and also the most number of employees. Udacity ended 2017 with 500 employees, but uh, they had layoffs and ended 2018 with uh, 330 employees. And this is how the micro-credential landscape uh, looks like. EdX and Coursera both have multiple uh, micro-credentials, each with their own branding. Uh, overall, uh, 630 micro-credentials existed at the end of 2018, but most of the new credentials came from just two credentials, specialized Coursera Specialization and EdX Professional Certificate. And the, but the big change in 2018 was uh, MOOC-based degrees. Uh, we ended 2017 by, with seven universities launching 15 degrees, or announcing rather, and in 2018, more universities joined in and launched 45 plus degrees. And I think we'll see more of this in this 2019 too. Thank you so much, Joel. 
So we're going to dig into some of these stats uh, for the next 45 minutes or so. And I also want to give you all a heads up. We'll have some time for Q&A at the end. So start thinking of your questions early. Um, one of the first things that I wanted to dive into in here, of course, when MOOCs kind of first hit the scene, a big part of massive open online courses was that open component and this idea that these would be free. Um, so, Capisha, I'd love to kind of hear from you a little bit more about this. So, um, why is Coursera pursuing this shift towards uh, MOOC-based degrees and, and monetizing some of these programs from a business and revenue perspective? Yeah, so, so we've been pursuing MOOC-based degrees and different types of micro-credentials for the last couple of years. And th we're doing this for two main reasons. So, when we look at, uh, when we look at the, the, the market, there's two huge trends that we're seeing. Uh, the first one is kind of, you know, the advent of AI and digital transformation. And so uh, a lot of people are going to be needing to learn new skills and, you know, AI and new technologies are going to be uh, displacing, you know, there's a recent McKinsey report which says north of 200 million jobs will be uh, disrupted due to automation. So we see this really big need out there for people to learn new skills and, and earn credentials which they can show to employers kind of vouching for those, those skills. Uh, and then the second one trend is kind of this demographic shift. So if you look at a country like India, over the next 10 to 20 years, there will be more than 300 million people that will enter the workforce. And there's no real kind of infrastructure uh, available to train that many people. And there's no real kind of assurance or way for, uh, for all of these people to get the skills uh, that they'll need in, in, this, in this new world. So when we look at these two trends, uh, we think there's a huge opportunity and a gap for, for people to, uh, to be trained and get credentials and then connected to employers. And what Coursera is, we're not, we don't really see ourselves as a MOOC provider. We look at ourselves as a platform and a three-sided platform that's connecting learners, uh, educators, and employers. And so we, we're in this unique position to, to help universities and partners such as, you know, University of Virginia create credentials uh, that they can uh, and programs that they can use to satisfy uh, the needs of learners based on these two trends, and so that's why we've been innovating quite a bit in MOOC-based credentials, MOOC-based degrees, uh, because that's where we see kind of the big need over the next next few years. Now, Kristen, you work at UVA, which is one of the universities that partners with Coursera. Uh, what do you think about the direction that Coursera and other providers like edX are, are going in with uh, more and more MOOC-based degrees? Well, this is a tricky one. Okay, so <laughs> the University of Virginia partnered with Coursera in 2012. We fired our president because of her lack of online learning strategy and then rehired her because we had illegally fired her. Um, but we ended up signing up with Coursera. And we have three specializations and 43 courses. Um, and I, I want to quick touch on another, your earlier question about monetization, mm -hmm. because I think there is a, a tension in higher education about the fact that we're actually a business. And especially as a public university, we're a land grant to help the Commonwealth and the citizens of the Commonwealth and to try to fill jobs and to educate the citizens. But at the end of the day, there's a sustainability issue of, and for all the people that are thinking about startups in the audience, like there needs to be a business plan. And so I think, you know, in early days, and we still do free content. And I think um, if anyone is interested in that space, Michigan is doing a phenomenal job at, 
balancing teach-outs and having free programs that are sustained by other programs that are making money. Um, but I think as a university partner, from the beginning, we're a 200-year-old institution. We're a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, Thomas Jefferson founded our university. And it's very difficult for us to understand how our value proposition of a as a partner and a content provider on Coursera, like what our roles and responsibilities are compared to Coursera as they continue to move in a degree direction. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it would be valuable for our university and many other university partners of just being clearer and more transparent around this is how we're gonna work together because there are whole countries and domains and jobs that are opening that we're not agile enough as a university um, to serve, that we can serve in partnership with a vendor like Coursera, um, but maybe we're not so great at that communication yet. I'm curious why, like, why did UVA uh, get interested in partnering with Coursera or any of the other MOOC and, and online providers that you uh, work with, and, and has that evolved over time in terms of what you're doing now? For sure. Okay, so um, I work in our provost office, and if you're not familiar with the way universities work, the provost is your chief learning officer, and so any professor, anything that you might associate with your higher education degree probably is through the provost office. There's also people that care about the buildings and you know, making sure donors donate money. But um, within the provost office, um, we have 12 schools at the University of Virginia. So there's law, there's medicine, there's liberal arts, there's our Darden School of Business. Um, and each school has its own dean, and those deans can set priorities for what, how they want to shape their school. And so we came into the partnership with Coursera because we had multiple schools that were looking at flipping the classroom and trying to move away from large lecture classrooms where people, like, there wasn't a lot of value proposition by having graduate students teaching, and it was not a great transformational experience, and we wanted a better experience. And so because we had multiple schools asking for that, we did an institutional agreement. And we do, um, we have instructors on Udacity, we have a partnership with FutureLearn, we have a partnership with NovoEd, um, we have content on Udemy, and we are partners with Coursera. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of partnerships. Yeah. Um, Dwal, you mentioned this in the roundup as well. This last year, we've seen kind of this emergence of MOOC-based degrees, but not that long ago, things like nano degrees and, and micro-credentials um, were a little bit more in the spotlight than they are right now compared to degrees. Um, and I'm curious for any of you, where does that, where does the, progression towards MOOC-based degrees, leave micro-credentials, and, you know, are these going to be a thing of the past, or, or where do those kind of exist now? I think, uh, so micro-credentials are generally a grouping of courses, and I think packaging them as micro-credentials increases the chances of learners paying, and I think for that reason alone, they will linger along for a while, but I'm not sure if they're doing the job of being a job-ready credential. And the big reason for this is I think there's too much confusion in the market. And everybody's trying to own, own their the next big credential, sort of, unlike, unlike degrees, which nobody owns. Universities own them for hundreds of years. But yeah. Right. But 
it's globally across the country. You don't have to license it. You don't have to. It, there's a general understanding what degrees mean. And I think the understanding what micro-credentials mean is not clear. And I think even providers are confused because they have so much variation within their own micro-credentials. So it makes it harder for a student or an employer to you know, convey that information. Mm-hmm. You each have such a different perspective on the landscape. Like, what do you think is really driving the push towards MOOC-based degrees? Is it more so that it's easier to monetize? Is it that after all this time, we're realizing that employers and students still really like degrees? Or um, I don't know, what do, you, what do you guys see as kind of the biggest influences to this shift? Well, just for context, so I work at Acumen, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to changing the way the world tackles poverty. So we exist in a space that's a little bit outside of the traditional universities. We don't, also don't build our own platform, but what we are trying to do is reach social entrepreneurs or change makers around the world who are trying to tackle some of these very complex global issues and both equip them with the skills to do so, but also to find some of those individuals in unlikely places all around the world who can be equipped to do that. So all that to say, we're existing in this place that's a little bit outside of skills that can be traditionally certified. And so what we have been looking to do is to build more like project-based assessments or portfolio-based kind of learning modules. But hopefully, I think, I share the recognition that we all need to be working towards some kind of assessment systems or tracking systems. Badging hasn't quite worked, but we know that there are these skills that are existing outside of traditional degree programs that we need to be codifying in some way or helping people to connect to employers and opportunities. So that's kind of where I fit into this broader landscape, I think. What do you feel like is missing from kind of the typical MOOC experience? Well, Kristen and I both did the same learning design and technology graduate program at Stanford. And I I was there in 2012 and 2013, which was when MOOC platforms like Coursera and Udacity and NovoEd were all spinning out of the engineering school. (laughs) And so we were kind of sitting on the sidelines at the ed school and saying, shouldn't learning designers kind of be playing a role in building these platforms? And I think what the engineers did really well was achieve the scale and the back end and the data analytics and all of the power that comes with this technology. But I think what has been missing is some of the elements of the community and the in-person interactions that can happen when you have these hugely diverse populations all aggregating on the same platforms. So I'm kind of interested in backwards engineering this experience now of taking what works really well in an in-person classroom and thinking about how could you emulate some of those instructional moves that you do in the classroom with something like a Zoom session and then have multiple of those that could happen so that people could be interacting in these smaller, more video-based platforms or discussion chats and then kind of scale that out versus starting from the perspective of the content and just using these as a content delivery platform, how can we make a more interactive learning experience that leverages the people who are also part of these MOOC platforms? Are there ways that Acumen is like a couple examples of ways that you've seen that pretty successfully implemented? Yeah, so we are trying out a model we call virtual accelerators. And so these are more selective programs. So we actually ask people to apply. And that's something I think a lot of 
um, different MOOC providers are trying out is ways to get people to put a little bit of skin in the game, whether that's paying for something, whether that's having an application. We also sometimes make people form a team, but getting them to commit to something and really show that they want to do it. And then we host the content, so instructional videos, workbooks, all sorts of, of materials online, but then have people show up for two hours every week to do these kind of interactive discussions, case study reviews, peer feedback in a video chat format with people from all around the world. So I think this mix of some of the asynchronous content that you can access on a platform combined with some synchronous learning experiences, which makes people all show up at the same time and have some urgency to be there, are some of the ways we're starting to experiment with this. Hey folks, it's me again. So when I spoke with each of these panelists in our screening calls before the event, pretty much everyone brought up something about completion rates, which MOOCs don't exactly have the best reputation for. We'll hear more about that right after the break. From the AWS Educate Starter Account and the AWS Educate Job Board to a Cloud Associates degree and virtual classroom environments, AWS Educate has been delivering new initiatives to bring cloud learning and jobs to students since 2015, with a mission to provide students and educators with the resources needed to accelerate cloud-related learning. AWS Educate is getting ready to announce its newest offering for educators. Since launch, over 2,400 member institutions, 10,000 educators, and hundreds of thousands of students have used AWS Educate to learn about cloud technology. Learn more at bit.ly slash AWS Educate Evolution and sign up to hear about what is next. Um, and Amy, you wrote a piece about uh, completion rates not too long ago. Um, maybe it would be great if you could kind of just tell us a little bit about kind of the reputation MOOCs have around completion rates and, and kind of other thoughts that you have about that space. Yeah, so as Sydney mentioned, I design online courses every day, and I've been doing so for about five years. And probably the most frequently asked question I get is, what is the completion rate for your online courses? And to be perfectly transparent, for our MOOCs, it averages around 5 to 10%, which is the industry benchmark, um, if you look as a whole. And people say, oh my gosh, you know, you have 2,000 to 17,000 people signing up for these, and you're only getting 10% to complete. Isn't that a failure? And in some ways, I think it's always a great aspiration as an instructional designer to keep thinking about ways that you can help people persist in a learning experience. But I also think we're setting an incredibly high bar for what is often free content on the internet. <laughs> and if you compared it to other types of digital content, whether that's watching a video or reading a Medium post or doing anything online, you often see that if you were to do the equivalent of a MOOC experience, which is often signing up for a 12-week experience, doing quite difficult things, whether it's some exercise, some new kind of learning experience, I actually think it's kind of amazing sometimes to see who ends up at the other side of that funnel. And just to give you a sense, so our most popular course is a human-centered design course that we run with IDEO.org. And we have deliberately kept it quite hard. So we require people to form a team. We require them to go out and talk to real people, to interview them about their needs. They have to submit pictures back on the platform. They have to prototype something and test it in the real world. They have to, again, upload the assignment. But what we found is that if you get those 5 to 10% of people who finish it, 
they're really amazing individuals. And that is the equivalent of the you know, selection rate at some of the most competitive universities. So we actually think that these completion rates can be a really great source of a funnel that finds some remarkable people around the world. Um, Kopich, I'd love to hear how Coursera's views on completion rates have evolved over the years. So for context, I spent like two out of the four and a half years of my time at Coursera being the guy who was focused on and responsible for our completion rates. Uh, so, <laughs> so I have some experience in, in this matter. So, um, so, you know, I think our views have evolved quite a bit, just as we've learned about, you know, online learning and what MOOCs are and what they aren't. Uh, and it's true that you know, I think Amy said it really well. It's true that completion rates are really low, but it's also because there's just a lot of people actually just trying out courses. And uh, when you have 100,000 people enroll in a class, they're exploring and not all of them intend to, uh, intend to learn. And so what we see is uh, if pe- people who have skin in the game are, have a much higher completion rate, and if you focus on those, for, so as an example, people that are paying to earn a certificate, uh, or enrolling to earn a certificate, you see that completion rates shoot up to north of 50 or 60%. And as you go up that commitment curve, you see much higher completion rates. And so what, uh, what we've done, so one evolution we've had is we've, uh, we focus a lot more now on people that have some sort of commitment or skin in the game as opposed to everyone that's just trying. We still want to make the platform more engaging so that even the very casual person who's just, you know, checking it out uh, still gets engaged uh, in, in the course and ends up completing, but that's not the, the focus. Uh, and we've done, you know, numerous things, you know, starting from like course structure and scheduling to, to community and engagement to now using a lot of uh, AI and machine learning to provide just-in-time support uh, to, to improve completion rates. And we've seen kind of huge gains uh, through, through each of these uh, efforts. Um, And then, Kristen, obviously universities care a lot about completion rates. So when you say things like this online course has a 5% completion rate, what is that? What kind of response do you usually get to that? I think with MOOCs, there are definitely people that are just looking to figure out how to do a pivot table. And they don't want to use, you know, Linda, or they think, you know, I want to write a business plan. And I bet Darden School of Business is going to have a great business plan. Or I want that design thinking um, primer so I can go into an interview and be able to say, oh, what is, what if, what, you know, they want to have like a more informed conversation. And um, I think in this area, it's better for us to pivot at other metrics of evaluation, such as net promoter scores, where you're looking at how many people would really are recommending this to others as it's of value and um, looking at more metrics that we see in the business world rather than traditional education metrics. I think maybe the other side of the conversation is not about how it's serving. You know, Justin Reich writes a lot about this from MIT of, you know, MOOCs are really reaching the people that don't actually need them, right? Like the already educated, employed, um, mid-30s professional. And, and maybe the other side of where we should go with that completion rate conversation is what about all the other people that aren't being served? And, like, what is it? Where's the, the delta that we can look at developing content or engaging 
that audience in a way that can make a more educated citizenry. <laughs> cool. So we've covered a lot, um, and I'd love to open it up to questions from the audience. It looks like we have one right here. Do you mind if I run a mic? Thank you. Having long arms helps. Um, uh, all right, from your different viewpoints, my name is Nicole, I'm with the State Department, but um, from your different viewpoints, uh, what does the future hold for our professors, our content creators, the experts, the subject matter experts? Is it a plight? Is it all opportunity? Are they the taxi drivers in this ride-sharing economy? Are they, um, are they going to be able to moonlight? Is it an intellectual property minefield because they can't? Um, What's, and, and maybe it's different for those that are slightly more research focused versus teaching focused, but what does the future hold for them? Okay, so my personal view, I mean, so we had early discussions in 2012 of like, okay, are we gonna have, and I'm dated, you can see the color of my hair, like is George Clooney gonna be teaching, you know, pivot tables? Um, and, and we're certainly not there, and I, I would argue, I think I certainly, and I hope every single person in this room, and I suspect everybody that's interested in education has had that one teacher or that one moment in that one place where your world was opened up or opportunities were put in front of you or challenges were created. And, and that is still something we need in spades, right? We need to figure out how do we scale that so that there are more of people that can have provide that type of experience to more people. Um, so I don't think that, but I'm, I'm also highly controversial at UVA because I feel like executive education is done. Like we are out of the business. We have set our faculty up to be consultants. We encourage them to consult and stay um, savvy in the marketplace. And like why Coursera is not like hitting every executive education client and saying, hey, Professor Alex Cohen, come and be a, well, be a consultant and do a high touch thing in San Francisco for a weekend. Like that business is, is gone. And so like, there's a little bit of a gig economy, I think that will come up in that space and it will not be every faculty member. Um, it'll be those that are savvy in that space um, and have good relationships. Anyone want to add to that? Yeah, go for it. I think we have some real strategic questions around where we start to put paywalls. And I see that not a lot of people end up wanting to pay for the content or the curriculum. You can get that for free. It's accessible in many different places. I spend a lot of time writing courses and developing that. So that's kind of painful for me to say, but I think it's true. I think what we are seeing people willing to pay for though is the instruction, the personal feedback, the structure, the rigor, essentially the teaching. And so I don't necessarily think that the role of the professor giving a lecture video is going to be what's going to be monetizable forever. But I think if we can transition more professors to being skilled learning facilitators and teachers, there's no shortage right now, I don't think, of people that still want to pay for some of that feedback and the customization and feeling like they're seen and taught by someone else. So I still see some revenue potential there. I'll add one more thing from Coursera's perspective, which is, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of these superstar professors. So yes, it won't be George Clooney teaching a pivot table, but 
you know, we have a lot of, uh, you know, Barb Oakley is a professor on Coursera who, who's reached uh, a lot of people. There's Dr. Chuck teaching Python, who has a massive audience, Andrew Ng, kind of the name for learning machine learning. So uh, you're definitely going to see a lot more of that, which is people who are really exceptional at teaching and building community will become really, really popular and, uh, uh, and really dominate uh, their topic areas. I think we have time for one more. Yeah, here in the front. This is so interesting because it raises so many issues. <laughs> just, I think of a university as an incubator of wisdom of learning where uh, a person can dedicate their life to exploring topics that might not be commercially viable, that nobody might pay them to do. And when I hear of a university dismantling their staff and sending them off as independent contractors, I think something huge is going to be lost. And when you talk about having a well-known professor uh, drawing an audience and teaching, that person is well-known and is valued because of the wisdom they have developed in a place like a university. It's not just some random guy off the street who happens to be really good at pivot tables or something like that. So I think I hear this story and I feel like something is going to be lost if we disintegrate these elements that have created value. Because when I look at a MOOC, what I'm seeing is uh, content transfer, mm -hmm. but I'm not necessarily seeing education or the, the higher value uh, that we can derive from, a, from a, an education experience. One question I did have was the issue of accreditation. Mm -hmm. uh, among other things, I happen to have a, a private school, a language school, and I know we're accredited, and then I know that if my pass rate was 5%, I would be shut down. Do you ever run into issues uh, like this? Um, I do think as far as like, there's a business plan and there needs to be sustainability and there needs to be alumni giving money for endowments and there will be people thinking and being paid to think and innovate and bump ideas off of each other. It's just a lot of those ideas are now going to be between people in different parts of the world. They're not necessarily going to be in one building at the University of Virginia. Um, and their funding might not be coming. It, you know, there's not a direct ROI. It's why we still have Latin classes and we have other things that just don't, they're not high money-making careers, but we still offer them as content. And that will continue to be the case. Um, as far as accreditation, I would say that I don't think there's any degree programs up anywhere online that have 5% completion rates, that would get yanked. Um, the programs that I'm sure are on Coursera and certainly the programs at the University of Virginia, um, ours are certainly closer to 100% than even 80%. Um, and this is where that uh, skin in the game goes, where uh, I'm sure there's a Coursera slide somewhere that talks to um, what those are for the degree programs, but I can't speak to the numbers, but 5% um, is, it's just a free MOOC or I'm gonna pay $49 and maybe post it to LinkedIn if I finish it. Yeah, so uh, our degree programs have more than a 90% uh, degree completion, uh, completion rate, not course completion, but like for the whole degree, which is uh, higher than a lot of the benchmarks for, uh, for similar degree programs. And, Ninety, yeah. Uh, and our universities, they work very, very closely with their creditors to, to ensure that everything is uh, accredited. A lot of them want to 
pursue kind of you know more innovative models uh, of how their degrees are structured. Uh, and that's definitely a conversation that they're always having with accreditors as, you know, as technology enables new things, how, how, do, how does the traditional view of accreditation actually take those into account? So, so that's always a, a push and a pull that we do. Yeah. I, do I do think that people, I think many of the people that are going into the degree programs are, they're proving their aptitude for being in the program by performing well in the coursework. Um, as opposed to what their GRE score is and when they last went to university. And so kind of there's a, it's, it's a different segment. It's not a cannibalization of what the other programs are. Yep. It's complementary. Well, we are out of time. So thank you everyone so much for coming tonight. And that's it. Thanks everyone so much. Thanks for listening to the EdSurge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Sydney Johnson. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen. And tune in next week for more on the future of education.